Women do not want their political power to enable them to boast that they are on equal terms with the men. They want to use it for the same purpose as the men, to get better conditions. Every woman in England is longing for her political freedom in order to make the lot of the workers more pleasant and to bring about reforms which are wanted. We do not want it as a mere plaything. Selena Cooper, a textiles worker and suffrage fighter, quoted in the Wigan Observer in 1906. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 11. Welcome to Labour Days. I'm Ellie Clark and I'm joined as usual by Ed Mustell and Daniel Randall and of course our lovely producer Liam. 2018 marks the centenary of the Representation of the People Act, a political reform that extended the franchise to all men over 21 and women over the age of 30 who had a certain amount of wealth or whose husbands did. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the involvement of trade unions and trade unionists in the struggle for women's suffrage in Britain. But before we begin, uh, Ed the Brain has an update on one of the disputes that we mentioned in our last episode. That's um, that's really sticking, that, isn't it? <laughs> um, not, not even for uh, the Labour history stuff, just, just generally. Okay, so you've probably been following, because it has a, a fair amount of uh, media coverage anyway, um, the uh, university workers' strikes against cuts to the USS pension scheme. Uh, that's members of the University and College Union, UCU, in the pre-1992 universities whose, uh, whose members are part of that particular scheme. They've had 14 days of strike action, which is pretty impressive when you consider that uh, a lot of strikes these days are just one day or two days. I think it's an unintended consequence actually of the Trade Union Act that I think it's now so hard to get a a, a legal uh, strike ballot that I think more unions are thinking, well, there's no point going through all that Mm. to just have a 24-hour strike. So they're kind of going for it in a bigger way. Um, There's been a a, a generally a a very solid uh, response from union members and also from students on various campuses. There's been sit-ins and occupations in, in support of the the lecturers. Uh, so as we record, um, talks between the UCU and the university employers mediated through the conciliation service ACAS are ongoing and it's notable and very commendable that the UCU um, didn't suspend or call off um, the kind of s- second part of the, the strike action because it has been a feature of uh, so a lot of unions kind of strategy in, in recent years to suspend strikes mi- merely for n- negotiations or even sometimes just the promise of negotiations rather than actual concessions and it does seem that um you know there there, there is a, a a real will and desire there to, to kind of push on and, and and win the demands of the strike not not just to get more talks uh we also wanted to mention um strikes by similar workers uh in, in kind of similar industries elsewhere in the world and there's an ongoing uh, strike of education workers in, in west virginia in america who are fighting for uh, for decent pay there's a lecturer's strike ongoing in Kenya, um, and as we record, a strike of non-academic university staff in Nigeria has entered its third month. Um, all of those strikes show that every industry, including education, um, is a site of class struggle, and that workers um, in so-called professional jobs, such as teachers, university workers that, that might once have been viewed as, as middle class, are, are in fact very much part of our class and, and are involved in some really inspiring struggles. Um, we wanted to send our solidarity to, to all of those strikes, and we'll put some information about uh, those disputes in the episode description. And we'll drop in a plug there for Labour Start, which is a, a really good um, 
kind of lab- international labour movement news aggregator where you can read a lot of uh, articles about these and other disputes. And now, on with the show. So, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be looking today at uh, the women's suffrage movement, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the involvement of the trade unions, or even more specifically than that, some individual trade unions in the struggle for women's suffrage. Um, Primarily, we'll be focusing on Britain, although we may mention other countries as we go along too. Now, we should say at the outset that we'll hardly be able to scratch the surface of some of the wider issues relating to this topic today. The question of the working class as a consistently democratic class, whether the labour movement has been a consistent force for for democracy throughout history, and why, in our view, it's necessary for the labour movement to fight for and defend democratic rights even within the parameters of capitalism. We might touch on some of those issues as we go along, but really the aim of today's episode is is to introduce you to some heroic individuals whose ideas and activities speak to a wider working class involvement in the suffrage movement. The fight for women's suffrage has largely been assimilated into the ruling class's history of itself, with the effect that the working class and socialist elements of the movement are often sidelined um, inside that history in favour of um, a focus on the movement's more middle-class or conservative leadership. While we don't claim that the suffrage movement was, across the board, intrinsically connected to the labour movement, in fact, far from it, it it was the case that there were many inspiring suffrage fighters who did see the fight for the vote as part of the wider class struggle, who connected the fight against women's oppression to the fight against capitalism, and who saw workers' organisations as the key agency for winning both freedom from gender oppression and the overall human emancipation. So today, we're going to introduce you to a few of them. Just before we do, I wanted to take a minute to um, encourage all of our listeners to read one particular book that probably more than any other source has has informed our research for this episode and informed the discussions that we're going to be having today, which is a book called um, One Hand Tied Behind Us by Jill Liddington and Jill Norris, um, which is is about the origins of the suffrage movement and, and particularly looking at the involvement of working class women, women workers, women trade unionists um, in it. I'm, I'm just going to read a bit from the blurb because I think it kind of sets things up quite nicely. So it says, um, the north of England was the cradle of the suffrage movement. Here, women worked long hours in factories and mills, struggled against poverty and hardship at home and at the turn of the century, fought not only for the vote, but for a wide range of women's rights. These radical suffragists, among them remarkable women like Selina Cooper and Ada Neil Chu, called for equal pay, birth control and child allowances. They took their message to women at the factory gate and the cottage door, to the cooperative guilds and trade union branches. Um, so, you know, if there's only one thing you take away from today's episode about any kind of further reading you want to do into this topic, um, we really would encourage all of our listeners to, to find a copy of One Hand Tied Behind Us. Jill Liddington mm-hmm. also more recently wrote a book called Rebel Girls, which has more kind of biographical sketches of some of the working class suffragettes as well which is definitely that's also a fabulous title yeah as ellie mentioned um most of today's episode is going to take the format of some biographical sketches of um, women worker and women trade unionist suffrage activists and we hope that by introducing you to some of those individuals who perhaps are are, are a little bit less well known than some of the um, more famous figures that you might have heard in kind of mainstream histories we hope that by introducing you to them we can give you a sense of um 
the kind of movements and organisations that they were involved in, and, and as and as Ellie said, we hope that that will will kind of speak to and indicate the the, the working class um, I- engagement in and, and and in some places the kind of animation of um, the suffrage movement. So um, Ed's gonna Ed's gonna kick off um, uh, talking about uh, an activist called Julia Varley. Yeah, I'm not gonna do like a hugely detailed biography of Julia Varley because there is uh, luckily for me. Uh, a, recent a, a hugely detailed <laughs> um, a, a recent pamphlet about her that uh, you can get from uh, Unite's education department, um, which is kind of the, the whole story of her life. So I'm, I've, basically, I've, I've kind of cribbed um, a few bits from that. Uh, but is I'll that just, available online? Uh, it is available online, actually, as a, as a PDF. Right. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've sort of cribbed a few bits from that, and I'll, I'll sort of use that to talk a, more about the maybe about the context of the time in terms of uh, trade unions and women's trade unions and, and stuff like that. So so the first kind of remarkable aspect of Julia Varley's kind of career in the labour movement is that she became branch secretary of a branch of the Weavers and Textile Workers Union uh, in Bradford at the age of 15. And that was in the 1880s, yeah. right? So the, the sort of image of the, I mean the labor movement still has an image of being like very male dominated but like 125 years ago um, it's not an image I mean well, <laughs> it's an it's an image for a reason yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so 125 years ago 15 year old girl full time been working full time as a textile worker for three years since she was 12 becomes branch secretary of a, a union branch um she used her position in the local labor movement um, position on Bradford Trades Council. I think she was the first woman on Bradford Bradford Trades Council um, to push the Trades Council to support women's suffrage. That was pretty early on for labor for labor movement organisations mm-hmm. giving formal support. Mm-hmm. So that was around nineteen hundred that, that she did that. Um, it's worth mentioning that women's trade union organisations go back at least to about eighteen. 74 mm. with the foundation of the organization which became the women's trade union league now obviously women's involvement in trade unions goes back decades and decades longer than that but the kind of establishment of specific women's trade unions which in itself was a, a controversial point mm. for, for many years like should women be organized in their own organizations mm-hmm. or should male dominated unions be opened out <laughs> You also have things like in the in the new unionism period, Eleanor Marx, who's been mentioned uh, on the podcast before, uh, was involved in setting up a kind of sort of women's section mm. of the union that later became the GMB, yeah. which is quite pioneering in, an, in you know in a number of ways. Uh, it's sort of accepted in most trade unions now that they have kind of equality structures that are to some degree sort of self-organised by mm-hmm. women or LGBT people mm-hmm. or black members, etc. Mm-hmm. And El- Eleanor Marks was, was po- kind of pioneering that in um, uh, the ancestor union of the GMB w- way back in the 1880s. Yeah. Um, so Julia Varley got involved in um, something called the National Federation of Women Workers, which was a, as, as the title suggests, was an explicitly uh, women's trade union. Um, the most well-known uh, figure... Uh, involved in that was uh, Mary MacArthur. Um, Mary MacArthur was um, herself, and, and this is this is an interesting uh, kind of aspect, I think, of the involvement of women trade unionists in the suffrage movement. So Mary MacArthur was sort of very briefly involved in militant suffrage a- activism with the WSPU, mm-hmm. the Pankhurst organisation, mm-hmm. but kind of 
went along to a couple of WSPU actions, did did some like militant shit, and then kind of, <laughs> kind of, not so much lost interest, but just put her energies elsewhere and, mm-hmm. and started organising with the with the Women Workers Federation and stuff. And so a lot of these individuals were. T- it's not a case that like someone is either a suffragette first or a trade unionist mm-hmm. first. Or like, like a lot of these women are, are doing all this different stuff. They're doing different things at different times, or maybe it depends on where they end up living or that you, what particularly what's going on in the place where you are you know just as that sort of stuff might impact on what you decide to do politically today and there's so there's not like a sort of hierarchy of like I, I, we're not trying to sort of claim that these women were necessarily first and foremost trade unionists who just have a, a little bit of in, sort of interest in, in in the suffragette movement or whatever or the other way around um so Julia moved to this is this is interesting as well. Um, moved to Birmingham uh, to organise for the Women Workers Federation at the invitation of uh, the head of the Cadbury family, who had the uh, <laughs> who had the sort of model factory, yeah. in the, and who wanted the union to organise in his rival <laughs> in, his, in his rival factories in the in the confectionery business. Um, I'm not sure what his position actually was on on um, women in his own factory unit because I know they had kind of a they had kind of works councils and stuff like that there, yeah. and I don't really know what the role of the union was there. Um, but being in Birmingham, being in the Black Country, she was involved in the Chainmakers Strike in 1910, which was the Women Workers Federation's um, sort of flagship, uh, best known industrial dispute, which Mary mm. MacArthur was was key to as well, and that was a. a that was a workforce of women who were very, very skilled, but also incredibly poorly paid. And there was a lot of uh, issues also there around um, things like childcare, which basically... So, I mean, the, the condition of those workers is absolutely awful. Like, they, they were... Um, many of them had to take their small children into the workshop yeah. with them and just kind of leave them in the corner of the workshop while they did a 10-hour day and then went home again sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it, it was a it was an industrial strike, but it also raised all these other questions about about, uh, about the role of women in society and, and women's rights in other ways. Um, by this time, Julia had, also, had already been arrested um, twice for trying to break onto the floor of the House of Commons with the WSPU. Um, Another interesting sort of aspect of, of Julia Varley's life is that her great-grandfather was a survivor of the Peterloo massacre mm. and later became a Chartist. Mm-hmm. And so in her conception of her own politics was this very... Even though her father was a Tory and didn't much like her, went, her getting involved in the union when yeah. she was a kid and all the rest of it, yeah. um, going back further into her, her, her family history... Um, there's sort of chartism there and there's a kind of democratic kind of strain in, in that and uh, when she was in prison she said uh, she wrote a letter saying uh, we've got the fire of the old chartists yeah. in our veins and prison won't put it out so she was very much seeing herself in that in that I mean tradition. I think I think that connection is is worth just dwelling on for a second um particularly because you know the the, the, the first movement for democracy you know, the first significant movement for democracy, for the extension of the franchise in British history, was a workers' movement. It was Chartism, yeah. and the first um, kind of political polemic or, or piece of political literature to explicitly argue for and insist on women's suffrage was written by Anne Knight, who was a, a woman Chartist in um, 
in in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. Um, in Sheffield, I believe. That's yeah, that's <laughs> right. Um, and and she and she went on to found um, a group called the Sheffield Female Political Association mm-hmm. with, with with other women chartists. So, uh, the, so there's there's definitely a genealogy there in terms of um, women who'd been involved in, in in chartism or 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 women who were kind of connected to it politically or through their family or whatever. Then going on to become um, early activists in the in the women's suffrage movement in a slightly later period yeah yeah so um so julia was twice uh, put in holloway prison for uh, wspo activities um so holloway prison was the women's prison in london where where most of the radical suffragettes ended up at mm-hmm. one point or another now she thought that the conditions in holloway prison were better than a lot of the lodging houses that she'd seen yeah. in Yorkshire and the Northwest that a lot of women had to raise their families in. I mean, that's still quite a common theme, isn't it? You hear people go like, I, I had a better time on the inside, I yeah. got three square meals a day, like it was it was at least warm. Yeah, and she did, um, around this time as well, she did uh, what was called going on the tramp, where she kind of uh, disguised herself and she sort of went, that sort of undercover journalism really, and went to some of these awful lodging houses and kind of reported just how bad how bad things were and um, she later became uh, an organizer for paid organizer for the workers union which was a union that uh, organized men and women in the same organization which rapidly 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 expanded during the first world war when a lot of uh, women went into munitions factories and the workers union sort of went in and 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 helped them to organize um Post the First World War, she attempted this. This is like just a little vignette that I've drawn out of the out of the pamphlet. She attempted to set up a trade union club for women in domestic service, mm-hmm. like a sort of mm-hmm. like a physical club where they would go and you know. Um, but it fell apart due to intra-servant snobbery. Like, <laughs> The but there is so like service. yeah i mean like i mean it, it's easy to laugh but there was actually quite like a strict hierarchy yeah. amongst like help in yeah. in those big houses yeah. and uh, and that was one in all of this period where so many um uh women workers were, were being organized um that was like the one really big industry where i think the trade unions never really made that much headway at all it was, mm-hmm. in, was in domestic service um, but so uh, late, later life, she sort of becomes one of the great and good of the labour movement. I think she ended up with an OBE and that sort of thing, you know, and was, wasn't. But that's interesting to to think about as well, because the, these people are not necessarily like uh, they don't spend their entire lives as like revolutionary socialists necessarily. Yeah. Like a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of the women involved were sort of in the independent Labour Party, which was yeah. not a revolutionary organisation, you know, socialists of all sorts of various stripes but um so i'll leave it there in terms of the life of julia varley uh hopefully that gives a bit of context about women's uh, trade union organization around this time uh, and i'll uh, hand over to ellie to talk about um sylvia pankhurst cheers ed that was really great and um actually something that i really didn't know very much about so i found that really really interesting uh and kind of um on the flip side of that I'm now going to talk to you about the uh, the Pankhursts, who are perhaps the most famous of all the UK suffragettes. However, their story isn't a straightforward one. And I think probably the most interesting bits um, of their story are the bits that are the least documented. Um, so every their story starts in Manchester in 1903, when Emmeline, the mother of Christabel and Sylvia, founded the Women's Social and Political Union, 
or the WSPU, as you've heard us refer to in previous sections. Um, and now, although the Pankhursts were all very well-to-do women, the WSPU did start life as a, as a kind of radical organisation that worked closely with the Independent Labour Party and had had a, a fair few, if not, like, mostly working-class Labour movement-orientated members. Um, and they did call for the vote for all women, which actually wasn't common in the mainstream suffrage movement at the time. Most of the older and more established movements called for votes for called for votes for women to be equal to that of votes for men, which meant working men and women who make up a huge percentage of the population would still have no votes. Mm. Um, so it is worth mentioning at this at this time that like it wasn't that like all men had the vote and all women didn't. Mm -hmm. There was still a large number of working class men who who were not enfranchised. Soon the WSPU spread to East London with the help of Annie Kenny, a trade unionist and independent Labour Party member, and Minnie Badlock, a working class independent Labour Party member who campaigned alongside Keir Hardy for better wages for women workers. So the first London WSPU branch was in Canning Town, uh, big up east side, <laughs> uh, but it soon spread to uh, it soon spread to other areas with the aid of Sylvia Pankhurst. Um, and before you knew it, there were branches in Poplar, Bow, Stepney, and Limehouse. Uh, and this created a huge militant and actually quite infamous suffrage movement that was very much populated and organised by working class women. Um, however, that didn't last. State repression took its toll with, as we've discussed in the previous section, working class women having much harsher punishments than the middle class women and also having more at stake. Now, I don't want for one second for I don't want people to think I'm suggesting that working class women are not strong enough to be the backbone of of a political movement. But it is undeniable that women workers have more stress placed upon them than any other section of society. We are breadwinners, caregivers and activists all at the same time. These women didn't just face 15 days hard labour. Without anybody to pay the rent or keep the children, they also face losing their families and losing their homes as well. Um, As Hannah Mitchell put it, Uh, in her biography, which is where the title of the book that Daniel spoke about earlier comes from, no cause can be won between dinner and tea. And most of us who are married had to work with one hand tied behind our backs. Mm. Um, So as you can tell, like the the burden placed upon these women was was just, was absolutely obscene. And on top of this, Emmeline, Christabel and most of the WSPU were moving sharply to the right. They were becoming more anti-democratic. They broke their links with the Independent Labour Party and before long had dropped their call for all women's suffrage, instead focusing on the old old call for equal votes for men and women. Uh, These caused many working class women to kind of to walk away from the WSPU. Uh, Christabel actually quite famously said to Sylvia once that working class women cannot be relied on because their lives are already too hard and their education is too meagre. It would be a mistake to throw your lot in with the weakest portion of the sex. Now I'm paraphrasing, but you get where she's coming from. Um, Yeah, it was it was a really really huge turn to the right from from the WSPU leadership. Christabel developed all sorts of. uh wonderfully reactionary opinions mm. <laughs> after leaving the uh, ILP but it's uh, I mean I suppose also in their defence a little bit one of the reasons they broke with the ILP is that the ILP despite being the most enthusiastic section of the labour movement on the suffrage mm-hmm. question still wasn't 
enthusiastic enough yeah. really so yeah, it, yeah. It, so, so yeah. it was it was a right policy on paper yeah but. yeah it, it was a move to the right but it was also partly precipitated by the labor movement being a bit shit on the yes. question as well sure I, and that is true but also there is like a catch-22 as well of like if you start calling for only certain women to get the vote those women tend to be the women who vote tory yeah. so they are, <laughs> like if you want like people who have own property and like you know have like formal educations those women tend tended to vote tory and that was a, that so was it's... why a lot of male trade unionists opposed that demand because mm-hmm. they thought well all all that's going to happen is you're going to create loads more conservative voters and the Labour Party is going to be screwed. Well, Ada Neil Chu, um, who uh, I'm going to talk about in a second, has this really great great quote on uh, that exact question. She says, um, so she's arguing against the policy Ellie's talking about of basically campaigning for votes for middle class women. And she says, um, the entire class of wealthy women would be enfranchised um, that the great body of working women, married or single, would be voteless still, and that to give wealthy women a vote would mean that they, voting naturally in their own interests, i.e. their own class interests, would help to swamp the vote of the enlightened working man who is trying to get Labour men into Parliament. So, you know, there was definitely... The, the kind of the suffrage movement itself was a site of class struggle, yeah. if you like. Yeah. And of course, it's not true that all middle class women voted. Tory. Of course, that, or, or, that's or a bit the, of a straw man argument, or that all yeah. working class men vote Labour. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. But that was the that's a kind of snapshot of the debate that was going on at this at this time in the in the movement, I guess. Yeah. However, luckily, Sylvia didn't listen to her sister and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and instead uh, she chose to stay true to her socialist roots. So she returned to East London in order to get working class women back into the WSPU. Um, she was actually very successful. And once again, East London had a democratic working class militant suffrage movement to be reckoned with. Um, their sites were much higher than just the vote though they understood the need for sweeping social change so joined up with other groups focusing on things like the living wage decent housing equal pay old age pensions and home rule for Ireland, along many other issues and this is something that i think is kind of worth dwelling on so um i don't i actually don't mean this in a flippant or kind of snarky way but i think sylvia pankhurst one of the things that's quite special about her is she probably was one of the first intersectional feminists like she was doing intersectional feminism before it was cool and she (laughs) realized that you cannot divorce your class from your gender and also now i'm speaking off the top of my head here and i'm hoping i'm remembering correctly but she also when she was in america spoke loudly and often that oftenly (laughs) spoke loudly and a lot about um about the abolition of things like slavery and giving black people the vote um, and black workers. And she also, um, I think, did work with Indian women workers movements. Um, And one of the things that struck me when I was reading some of the research about this is that Indian women would say after meeting Sylvia that she didn't come and try to tell them what to do. She came and listened and spoke and tried to understand what was happening in their own movement. So I think that's what something worth dwelling on. Um, it's not it's not the case that these were just all um, kind of white women that were only focused on white women issues. 
So Sylvia and others around her were so troublesome that eventually Christabel um, expelled expelled them from the WSPU, <laughs> uh, saying that they were too independent and mixed up with other causes, leaving the Pankhurst women with what can only be described as the mother of all family dramas. <laughs> you think your family did us a bad? They didn't speak to each other for years. Yeah, they know. didn't. And yes, she yes. wasn't... Uh, Sylvia Pankhurst wasn't allowed to attend her own mother's funeral, was yeah. she? I yeah. mean, they really did take pretty divergent paths you know yeah. Yeah. and Adela the other sister uh, was basically packed off to Australia with yeah. a 20 yeah. pound note isn't that she fell out with uh, Christabel yeah. as well yeah. is that because she ended up being a fash or just uh, that was before that she ended up being a fash <laughs> yeah. so uh, really divergent yeah, <laughs> yeah incredibly so the new Independent East London Federation of Suffragettes, or ELFs as I might describe them, um, flourished. And while there were a few ladies in the ranks, the majority of the organisation and its leadership were working class women. They published their own weekly newspaper, The Woman's Dreadnought, uh, held talks, rallies, uh, lobbied parliament, and importantly, did some really amazing, uh, really amazing solidarity work in East London that met working women's material needs. So, for instance, during World War One, as a way of tackling out of control food prices and unemployment, the Elfs organised uh, milk drives, and so that's basically where families with very young children could could get free milk, so the children weren't starving. Um, as well as a series of volunteer-run canteens that serve food at, uh, at cost price. They opened their own cooperative toy factory, which which paid women a living wage, which I think is just, it's so far ahead of its time, it's unbelievable. Which you can still, you can visit the site of that, the building it was in is still there, you can, you can go and see it. Yeah, and this factory also included a creche, and then later on they opened up an entire nursery. So, um... They were doing really, really important, like bread and butter things inside the community, really which a kind of social movement organisation yeah, in a lot of ways, like in the way that people kind of, kind of aspire for organisations to be these days. It's like all all this stuff they were doing a hundred years ago is very. Yeah. This stuff actually reminds me a lot of like uh, the Black Panthers, yeah. who I don't I don't want to get too far off because they they could be an episode in and of themselves. Mm. But, um, I, you know, people can sneer at that and say, like, oh, it's not revolutionary. But when our people, our class, are starving to death, like, somebody's got to go out and do something. Yeah. And if you happen to give them a pamphlet at the same time. And, um, but, and yeah. It's like, also self-organisation. Yeah. Like you say, it's, it's like work, it's like working class women were, were doing this. They weren't having it done for them by, yeah. by other people. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so they were they were doing these great things and they never stopped campaigning for the vote, lower food prices or equal pay throughout the First World War, even with extreme pressure from the rest of society to like get on with war work and, and pull together for the good of the country. They... Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a kind of key fault line in, in the suffrage movement as it was in the Labour, the Labour yeah. movement and the, you know, the whole of society, what attitude to take to, to the First World War and it's to the absolute like enduring honour of... of Sylvia Pankhurst and the people around her that, that she maintained a kind of internationalist, anti-militarist, anti-imperialist uh, p- position while her, her mother and sister and a lot of the rest of the kind of official leadership of the mainstream suffrage movement absolutely, as, as much of the official labour movement did, um, you know, just kind of collapsed um, uh, under the weight of, of, of patriotism and, you know, the, the, the kind of famous story of the, the Pankhursts going around giving out um, white feathers to shame Mm -hmm. conscientious objectors. You know, Sylvia and and, and the radical left wing of the suffrage movement absolutely stood up to that, and and that's very much to their credit. 
the, the other the other point to make, I guess, is is, is in, in this kind of official history, a lot of it is like, um, oh, women proved themselves during World War One yeah, because yeah. they played such a role in the yeah, war, yeah. and then they were kind of rewarded, rewarded with that. Yeah. Yeah. But well, firstly, that's that's kind of nonsense because a lot of that a lot of that reward, just like giving the vote to the remaining like working class men, was out of like the fear of sort of the possibility of social revolution if those if those concessions weren't made. Mm-hmm. But it's also the, the counter argument to the obvious counter argument to that is actually most of the women who went into the munitions factories wouldn't, wouldn't have, have, had have the got the vote yeah. with the nineteen eighteen act anyway because mm-hmm. they were working women, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, but by the time um, society had got to this point and and people did have the vote, uh, Sylvia had moved so far to the left that she saw absolutely no point in in <laughs> in parliamentary <laughs> politics, which is kind of ironic. Um, a position which um, I think split the elves and earned her a pretty scathing telling off from Lenin, which yeah. um, which in itself is it, I think quite a funny. Exchange. What was that? What was that pamphlet called? It's, in, it's called Infantile uh, Left Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder. Yeah. Yeah, so from uh, from from Christabel uh, being a sort of reactionary nationalist to Sylvia, who was too left wing for Lenny, yeah. <laughs> the divergence of the Pankhurst system. However, she never stopped campaigning, and up until her death, was actually very active in Ethiopia's national fight against colonial the colonial rule of Mussolini's fascist Italy. So um, you know, she she. She, her politics may have become different, she may have changed, yeah, but she I'm, never stopped. I'm, I mean, it's, I think you're right to sort of highlight that there, there was a sort of continuity to her politics and even some of the stuff she was doing right at the end was was quite worthy in terms of anti-colonialism. But, it, it, you know, for the sake of the, the integrity of the historical record, it should be noted that but she, but she was a, a pr- pretty um, uncritical supporter of... Haile Selassie, who yes, that is not true. necessarily a model of a progressive, you know, a progressive or democratic uh, system of government. Yeah, the, em- the emperor, the Haile emperor Haile Selassie, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that's worth saying um, about uh, Sylvia and, and, and Elves, Ellie's painted really well there a picture of of that that milieu and the movement around that organisation, and 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 uh, that period, that milieu was was populated by. Um, you know, ca- countless uh, heroic working women activists, many of whom are kind of lost to history in a way. And in, in a way, one of the one of the flaws about a lot of the um, histories of th- this period, and uh, that th- we're perhaps we're perhaps guilty of replicating ourselves, is that um, you know they focus on they focus on the kind of prominent leaders um, rather than looking at the the kind of grassroots and, and rank and file that that sustained these movements. So. Um, you know, it wasn't Sylvia kind of leading people in a kind of Pied Piper of Hamelin way. It was a it was a conscious, um, self organised movement. But there are there are a number of other people, perhaps even less well known. You know, Syl- Sylvia's probably less well known than her sister and mother, and and there are other people less well known than Sylvia who um, deserve deserve to be better known. You know, for example, uh, Minnie Lansbury, um, who was one of the rebel councillors in Poplar, which is a, a struggle that people might know about. Um, she was also a, a trade union activist. She was um, a, a teacher trade unionist in East London in the union organisation that kind of became the East London Teachers Association, which was the East London division of the NUT, which is now part of the NEU. And, and Minnie Lansbury was also a, um, a, 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 a an active uh, suffrage fighter. So it was a milieu populated by, by incred- a number of incredibly inspiring um, working class women activists. Mm. 
Okay, so uh, speaking of figures who are perhaps less well known, uh, the final kind of uh, historical nuggets uh, Daniel's gonna gonna give us. So do you wanna? Take yeah, away? sure. Um, so so I, I want to in, introduce uh, listeners to um, an activist called Ada Neil Chu. Um, who was a, a factory worker from Crew, and for our international listeners, um, which our SoundCloud uh, statistics tell us are are, are numerous, um, Crew is a town in, in Cheshire in the northwest of England. It's about uh, 35 miles from Manchester. Um, so Ada was sacked from her job in the factory after she was outed as the author of a series of anonymous letters in the local press demanding living wages for, for women workers in her factory. So she's someone whose political consciousness is very much... Um, shaped right at the kind of coalface of capitalism and the you know um, really at the at the kind of nucleus of the wage relation. Um, she was a member of the Independent Labour Party, the ILP. And they've been mentioned a number of times already. Ellie mentioned them in her presentation. The the, the Pankhursts before um, Emmeline and Christabel's lurch to the right were were ILP members. Um, Ed mentioned the ILP as well, and they're significant because they were one of the few bits of kind of major labour movement organisational infrastructure that were explicitly for women's suffrage. Um, although, as Ed pointed out, um, there's a question mark, a pretty big question mark over whether they did enough to enact and uh, you know pursue that policy. Um, so Ada spoke alongside Eleanor Marks, who, who we've mentioned before today, at meetings of the National Union of Gas Workers and General Labourers, um, which is the, the, the kind of ancestor union of today's GMB. That was in 1894. And as I mentioned earlier, Ada was very critical of the policy that the uh, WSPU leadership came to adopt mm-hmm. or, or kind of reverted to of, of only advocating votes for, for middle class women, basically. So she saw very much, she saw things very much in class terms. And, and as we said earlier, that idea of the suffrage movement as a site of class, of, of class contestation in itself um, you know, between uh, women coming from a working class and labour movement background who are basically fighting for universal suffrage versus women coming from a middle class or even aristocratic background f- fighting for votes for ladies, as, mm-hmm. as it was sometimes termed in, in their press. That's often left out of the histories. Now, you know, the, the, the picture's not necessarily as straightforward as that. And of course, there were women from working class background who agreed with the official policies and there were women from rich and wealthy backgrounds who kind of betrayed their class in the best way possible and threw their lot in with um with the working class and the labor movement but you know that that's an, a kind of important fault line that, that perhaps doesn't get the attention that um, it deserves um so a- ada was a member and in fact a paid organizer for um what might be called in a contemporary uh, sort of political movement parlance a staffer um, for the, the National <laughs> Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the, the NWSS, which was founded in 1897 and, and from which the more famous WSPU, which we've talked about a lot today, um, split in a split led by the Pankhursts in, in 1903 that, that Ellie mentioned. Now, official histories often focus on the difference in methods between the two organisations, the militant suffragettes of the WSPU and the more moderate suffragists of the NWSS. Um, but, but there were other in some ways more significant fault lines across and within um, b- both sort of official organisational wings of the movement, which often mirrored schisms in, in the wider labour movement. We've already mentioned the question of what attitude to take to the First World War. Um, Ada's life, I think, is is inspiring in a, in a number of ways, particularly her dedication to unashamed uh, uh, socialist propagandising. So Ada and Selina Cooper, who 
Ellie read the quote from in the cold mm-hmm. open and, and a number of other women, I think Julia Varley as well, had some political experience in uh, initiatives like the Clarion Vans, which were kind of traveling um, sort of road shows of socialist activists who would go around to, you know, mill towns in the north, just set up in the town square and kind of speechify for... for talk, talk about socialism. Talk about socialism, kind yeah. of speechify for socialism, who saw, you know, the key function of, of their political work as being just making the case for socialism and, and uh, you know, and, and particularly socialism as, as working class power. And that's, the, you know, that, that was Ada's kind of political sensibility and that was the, um, that was the, the kind of same method and the same um, elan that she, she took into her work um, in, the, in the suffrage movement as well. So, so much of her activity as a suffrage fighter was dedicated to, to, to similar kind of st- stuff, t- touring the country, speaking to crowds, of working class women making the case not only for universal suffrage but um, for socialism. So, so she's absolutely a, 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 suffra- a suffrage fighter, a suffrage activist with her roots in the class struggle and in labour organising um, and, and the political ideas that compelled her to fight for suffrage were, were forged in her experiences as a worker. Um, so uh, perhaps it's fitting then to, to end this little presentation uh, with some of Ada's own words take, taken from her letters to the, to the crew chronicle and which, as I said, she was um, sacked for writing, um, which show how her own experiences as a, as a women work as a woman worker shaped her ideas about class and gender oppression. So, you know, so so again, it's um it's a kind of in, as Ellie said, it's a sort of intersectional approach mm-hmm. before um before that idea existed as a sort of discrete <laughs> concept. So so Ada wrote, "We are not asking for pity, sir. We ask for justice. Surely it would not." be more than just to pay us at such a rate that we could realise a living wage in the true sense of the words in a reasonable time, say one present working day of from nine to ten hours till the eight hour day becomes general and reaches even factory girls. Our work is necessary to our employers. Were we not employed, others would have to be, and if of the opposite sex, I venture to say so, would have to be paid on a very different scale. Why, because we are weak women without pluck and grit enough to stand up for our rights, should we be ground down to this miserable wage? So you get the sense there that um, uh, Ada doesn't see the fight for suffrage in isolation or in abstraction. She sees it as part of a broader fight for women's emancipation, for women's rights, that in itself is intrinsically connected to the working class struggle for human emancipation. You know, she very clearly identifies capitalist exploitation as the kind of wellspring of, of the oppression that she's fighting against. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I guess I'll just wrap up by sticking in another plug for, for anyone who's, for some reason, dropped in uh, midway through the episode for... Um, <laughs> that doesn't happen. We're not, we're not on the radio. <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of... It's sort of nice to have the conceit that it's like a live yeah. radio broadcast. Yeah. So I'll drop in another plug for Jill Liddington and Jill Norris's book, One Hand Tied Behind Us, which talks a lot about um, um, Ada and Selena Cooper and, and, and other um, women textile workers, particularly in the northwest of England, who were who were really key to the kind of working class uh, engagement with with the suffrage movement. This is labor, 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 labor. Okay, so uh, just to round off, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about the kind of ideas that that um, this stuff throws up, and specifically, I'm actually going to hand over to Ed now, who has a few things to say about the role of labor movement organisations during this period. Yeah, I mean, we so, I guess we focused on individuals partly because it's that's a very interesting way of looking at things. The the the, the lives of these women, the political kind of careers of these women, is very interesting. Uh, partly because, and, and 
you know, we're always, like we're a trade union podcast, we always try and put a union sort of uh, angle on things. And you might have listened to all of that and been thinking, where are the unions though? Because, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, all of these women were trade unionists, were active in trade unions in most cases before they were active in the suffrage movement or, or at the same time. But we haven't mentioned like the sort of... Uh, big battalions of the labour movement swinging behind the demands for women's mm-hmm. suffrage. And, and the simple reason for that is that they didn't. Yeah. And that for a lot of this period, um, large parts of the, the labour movement were asleep to this issue, hostile to it, or just wished that it would go away. Mm-hmm. Now, even in the ILP, sort of mentioned, <laughs> even in the ILP, which was the most sort of pro-suffragette uh, organisation, there were people like... Um, I mean, Ramsey MacDonald supported women's suffrage, but he really opposed the WSPU, mm-hmm. and he tried to play on uh, uh, working-class women's hostility to middle-class women and, mm. and tried to kind of, yeah. you know, he said, oh, if, if the working-class women could come down to London and, and, and see what all these petty-fogging middle-class damsels were doing with their window-smashing. Yeah, middle-class stone-throwers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it, that's incredibly patronising because, as we now know, Loads of WSPU activists were working class women Absolutely. from the north who mm-hmm. were who in many cases moved down to London to be involved mm-hmm. in the militant campaign or or did it in other parts yeah. of the country. And it also says a lot about his thinking because I, I I also have read that quote and a lot of it seems to be centered around you know I was on your side but you just had to take everything too far didn't yeah. you you, <laughs> yeah. just, you just and, and you how, know and and you're not winning that, any you know? friends are you yeah. you just how, had to how often do we hear that you know in the hundred years since you know yeah. but. So, in terms of the unions, so the demand for women's suffrage was first raised um, at the TUC in 1894 by yet another textile worker from Lancashire, Helen Silcott. So, you, and you, so you begin to understand like the importance of the textile workers' union because because textiles was an industry that always had women workers in it, and the unions always organised women workers. That's one of the reasons why they were in, on the trade union side. They were probably the most supportive mm-hmm. organisations. But from Helen Silcott raising that in 1894 to the TUC actually coming out in support, 20 years, only on the eve of the First World War, Mm -hmm. does first the Labour Party and then the TUC actually come out in support of women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. And it is, that is partly down to the militant uh, campaign of of the WSPU, it's partly down to the campaign of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. It's down to like basically women trade unionists mm. shifting their own organisations in the right direction. Just like there's no, you know, we've 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 talked about this before in relation to other topics, but there's there's no guarantee that the trade union movement's always going to have the right progressive attitude mm-hmm. on anything, and it's always got to be us who have to like sh- shove it and push it in in the right direction, and that, that's I think what's going on here. Um, that's one of the reasons why. The way into talking about it is is through talking about individuals because mm-hmm. it was those individuals who who did that, you know, in, in the movement. Sure, I mean, I, I think I, I think you're right, and I think um, you know, look, we're, we're not a we're not an academic podcast. We want to make this stuff accessible, and it is a it is a kind of easy, you know, doing like three sort of biographical sketches like mm-hmm. we've done is a, a kind of accessible way into talking about this stuff, um, and and. You were saying um, before Ed that um, I, th- I think off air, uh, but it's worth mentioning while we're recording that you you don't necessarily agree with the idea that um, social history that focuses on individuals is is kind of necessarily more conservative or, or reactionary, and that the kind of progressive left wing way to do social history is um, 
just to talk about sort of organisations in a sort of faceless way. And I think I think you're right about mm-hmm. that. And there definitely is a place for um, history that, that that talks about individuals. I, I really got the sense um, reading the Jill Jill Liddington and Jill Norris book that there's this whole kind of galaxy of um, organisations in this period in this movement set up by self-organized by working class women women workers and um, for example the um uh, they, they talk a lot in particular about the lancashire and cheshire women textile and other workers representation committee which um they they rightly comment is a slightly wordy name but um so that was an organization that selena cooper and ada neil chu and, and some of those other people were involved in you know there are other groups um uh, like the Sheffield Female Political Association we mentioned before, set up by by Anne Knight and other women chartists. Um, there's this whole, um, you know, uh, range of 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 these organisations that we never really hear about. Are kind of uh, written out of most of the mainstream histories in favour mm-hmm. of a focus on a, a pretty crude focus on the split between the WSPU and, and the NWSS. Mm-hmm. And and it was often, it was these organisations that were animated by, set up by, animated by, organised by um, working class women who were also trade unionists, mm-hmm. worker activists, yeah. socialist activists, and who saw the setting up of these kind of radical suffrage organisations as absolutely intrinsically connected to their political work as socialists. Um, and And something I've ho- hoped that we've done with this episode today is, is give listeners a sense of that, that um, the suffrage movement did have a, um, a significant working class element and that lo- lots of parts of it, maybe not the parts that get the most attention or that yeah. are best known, but lots of parts of it were animated by people who saw what they were doing as, as connected to their, to their class struggle activity. So um, yeah, if you, want, <laughs> if you want more on all of that, once again, uh, read One Hand Tied Behind Us. So that about brings us to the end of this episode of Labour Days. Um, as we said at the start, we couldn't really give a comprehensive history of this incredibly fascinating uh, period. Uh, we just, uh, well, obviously we'll put up uh, uh, reading uh, suggestions for people to, if, if you want to find out more about it. Uh, hope we've given you a good intro to it, though. At least. And amazingly, we've managed to get through a whole episode without Dan mentioning the Teamsters. So, well, it's funny you should say that actually, Ellie, because um, I did, I did want to just um, drop in a plug for um, uh, an initiative uh, which has been launched by uh, the Finsbury Park branch of the RMT that's that's my union mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it would be quite um, fair for this podcast to take credit for it um, but uh, <laughs> the uh, activists in Finsbury Park RMT uh, are setting up a reading group where they're going to be reading um, Farrell Dobbs's Teams to Rebellion yes. and looking at the um, uh, looking at the lessons of that book and and, and of that uh, the strike that it talks about for contemporary um, workplace organising, you know, particularly in, in the transport had to, industry, had to get it, get it in right at the death, didn't you? <laughs> you know? Sure, but look, I think I think um, look for a number of reasons uh, we should um, uh, highlight that sort of thing. Firstly, because I think it's really good to see a union branch taking the question of labour history seriously, running a reading group, yeah. encouraging people to read books. Um, rather than just uh, you know tweets or whatever, um, and uh, look, I think um, we this this we on this podcast and me particularly have been a champion of the enduring importance and legacy <laughs> of uh, that book and that strike, and it's and it's really great to see um, a, a union branch, and I'm very proud that it's a branch in my union in my mm-hmm. region of of the union that's 
um, that's that's taken that up and I'm looking forward to getting involved. So yeah, so if you are sat at home thinking maybe you want to set up a reading group uh, for Jill Liddington and Jill Norris's book maybe, then uh, let us know. Let us know what you get up to in the real world and we're always happy to plug it, publicise it through our channels. Also, just to let you guys know that the uh, the picture house dispute that we also love to go on about because we champion them as well, um, it's going to be having um, a strike on International Women's Day. Now, of course, by the time this episode goes out, um, that will have already happened. But we think it's worth mentioning that, um, you know, activists, they're still carrying that torch. They still understand the kind of history of of women women workers fighting and they're especially doing some sort of action on International Women's Day. So we just want to really commend our comrades for that. Yeah, and I think that's that that strike of, you know, a, a workforce um, that has a lot of women workers in it, striking on International Women's Day, foregrounding the kind of feminist aspects of their struggle. That's something that Julia Varley and Ada Neil Chu and Sylvia Pankhurst would, would be proud of if they were around mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Definitely. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Labour Days and we'll see you next time. Labor Days was presented by Ellie Clark, Ed Mustill and Daniel Randall and produced by Liam McNulty. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. Follow Labor Days on Twitter at Labor underscore Days and search Labor Days Podcast on Facebook. Subscribe to us and leave a review on iTunes and your favourite podcast platforms. Bread and roll